welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, my name is Micah, if we haven't met. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. Glad you're here. Um, I will begin by saying this. Um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but for the last, like, probably nine out of ten weeks, it's second hour that gets podcasted. Do you guys know what that means? You get the better sermon. You get the better sermon. More often than not, it's second hour that gets the, the, uh, the, the, the one of choice. So, well done. You've chosen wisely, I hope, I think. A um, little shout out to Jenna and the ladies of Awaken for hosting the ecumenical luncheon yesterday. Yeah, that happened. I was thinking about making an appearance, you know, the pastor saying hello, and then I was like, no, that would be such a lame move. Jenna's got this. She rocked it, as always. So um, thank you to the ladies of Awaken for representing our community and for hosting uh, the other ladies of the West 7th neighborhood. So that was fun. I guess there was a, a comment made that Whoever hosts next year has pretty high bar. They gotta, they gotta be, I'm just saying, you know, we kind of know how to roll around here. It's, just, it's what we do. So, um, what are we doing today? Uh, we are, we're in week two of a series entitled Wells and Fences. And so, if you were here last week, we began this series. And this is a series that asks a question about what kind of community we want to be. What kind of church do we want to be a part of? And sort of what are we aiming at? Uh, in a lot of ways... This is a question about how we hold our beliefs as much as it is what we believe. And it's a question about, like, what's the animating energy? What's the focus? What's the sort of motivation or uh, the emphasis of a community? And we talked about these two different ways of operating, these two different ideas or these metaphors of a fence and a well. And so on the screen behind me, you'll notice, uh, if you were here last week, this is review, but this is just set up for the series and kind of where we've been and really what's framing the whole conversation. On the left... Uh, is what's called a bounded set. And a bounded set is, by definition, it's defined by the boundary which separates those who are in from those who are out. And oftentimes, in a bounded set, the most important question and the animating energy and sort of motivation is, do you believe what we believe? And if you do, you're welcome to join us. But if you don't, you're welcome to stay on the outside. And for many of us, I would argue that that's been our religious experience, our church community experience, where a lot of the times, it's, it's bounded set and it's a fence. And, and it, it maybe is couched differently, but that's the animating spirit. That's the energy behind it. And on the other side is this idea of a centered set, where what's most important is, uh, and the question that sort of motivates this idea is, uh, what is in the center? Or are you thirsty, in this case, of a well being in the center? It's less about patrolling the edges and determining who's in and out, and more of a commitment to, like, what, what is in the center. And so just uh, from the outset, we've said, we, as a church... And I personally, I don't, I, ain't nobody got time for that. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm not interested in doing that. I think, I think there's a lot of people out there doing it, and we're just saying we're not doing that. Rather, we're, we're, we're attempting to do this, and this is the spirit, this is the energy that we hope to be present at Awaken. Um, to say it succinctly, the well in the center at Awaken is the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Beyond that, there's a lot of debate about what things, uh, things that are important, but maybe not essential not critical. Uh, they're, they're negotiable, as it were. They're debatable. Um, and I'll just say this, I'll say this at, at the beginning. Uh, I didn't say it last hour, but I think this is really important. This morning, I'm going to talk a lot about the denomination that we're a part of. And it may sound like I am sort of a, a, a banner waver, you know, like I'm a, I'm a bannerman in, in Game of Thrones for a certain clan. 
and, uh, or tribe. And I just want to say that's not the spirit in which I say this. I actually say this from a position and from a posture of, I have found incredible life and such um, profound friendship and depth of theology and history. And I have been inspired, that's the word I'm looking for, by the story that I'm going to try to tell this morning. It's not because I get paid for this, but it's because I've actually found there to be a lot of life in some of the things I want to share. And whether or not we as a denomination are, are living out of this story and out of this history and theology is debatable currently, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to paint the best picture. I'm going to put our best foot forward and invite us to be that kind of community. Amen? So, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to explore, over the next five weeks, these six affirmations that really stand at the center of the covenant, the denomination that we're a part of. Um, the first of which is the centrality of the word of God. And so, uh, the covenant began as a renewal movement. Uh, a lot of Swedes in the late 1800s uh, who immigrated to the United States sort of began this movement that was known as, or became known as, the Evangelical Covenant Church. In 1885 it started, and the denomination was almost named the Mission Friends. Which I actually like better than the Evangelical Covenant Church, truth be told. Because I think it says something about values, like that we are on mission together and this is that we are in friendship and in relationship and these are the bonds that tie us together. It's our common mission and our friendship and our family. Um, be that as it may, uh, we are the Evangelical Covenant Church or we're a part of this denomination. So there are these six affirmations that are at the center and one could argue like this is the gravitational pull in the covenant. And I want to suggest that the way in which we've held these affirmations or we've affirmed them is in the spirit of a centered set community. Which is, you oftentimes you'll hear people saying like, let's major on the majors and minor on the minors in the covenant, which is to say, there, what, are the, what are the things that like almost all Christians can affirm as true in the Christian story? Let's say those are essential, and then everything else that's minor, right? These are the majors, we're going to major on these, and we're going to minor on the minors. Said differently, thanks to Augustine, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Let me say it again. In essentials, unity. This is important. In non-essentials, liberty. This is the affirmation freedom in Christ. Stick around the next, in week five. And in all things, charity. Which is a statement about how we're holding these things. It's a posture of humility that recognizes our own limited perspective, but has great confidence in the work and the person of Jesus the Christ, right? So this has been the spirit of the covenant for a long time, and it's been a really beautiful family to be a part of. Uh, covenanters were and are pietists. Now, you may not know this, but if you really have grown to love Awaken, there's a very good chance that you're a pietist. Um, pietists are a group of people who started in Germany, sort of think about, you know, timeline, if you like history, this sermon's for you, Think Germany, think Luther, think the door of Wittenberg, 1517, the Protestant Reformation begins, and then a few hundred years later, some things need to be reformed and changed, and pietism wells up as a renewal movement in Germany, makes its way up north to Sweden and, and Norway and Scandinavia. These folks catch the fire of this, they catch the wind of this, and they come to America. That's basically our story. Pietism is this, uh, this challenge to what had become a dead institutionalized state religion and church. 
So it's a group of people who are challenging the status quo, saying that what was once alive and active and dynamic has become dead and stagnant, and we want to renew that because we sense there's, there's life in Christ, not just this rote religion where we come and baptize our babies and say, see you at confirmation and then never again. You guys have heard that joke, right? There's this great, great problem around the church with geese. They can't get rid of the geese. They're just crapping everywhere, pooping on everything. And then one old-timer at a, at a board meeting, he's like, I have an idea. Let's send the geese to confirmation. They'll never come back. <laughs> pietism, is known, pietism is known for a couple of things, all right? One, greater participation by the lay people, the laity, you all, instead of the clergy, clergy, laity, right? Greater participation of the laity of the church to do the work of God in the world. So if you had a dead state church, there was clergy and all these people doing the work, and the, the people, the church, they weren't doing anything. So pietists are like, no, we're a fellowship of believers. We're a priesthood of all believers, as Paul calls it. So we do this work together. There was a, uh, there was a, a call to the preachers of the, of the time for simple and clear uh, teaching and preaching, direct preaching, that had something, anything to do with our daily lives. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. So, you know, there's just, just, you guys remember Charlie Brown and the wah, 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 that guy? That was like the preaching in, the, in, the, in this time. And the pietists are saying, no, say something that matters to our actual lives, right? That means something to my day-to-day life as a farmer, as a post person, or a whatever. So there was a call to that. There was a there was an abandonment, which this part I love. There was an abandonment, abandonment to like the theological hair splitting. Have you ever been at that party or in that conversation where if someone were to stop and just zoom out, you would all say like, are we actually arguing about this right now, right? Just dumb stuff, theological hair splitting. And there, the pietists are like, stop doing that. It's not bringing life. It's not bringing life, so can we quit it? And then lastly, they were known for this, um, this call for widespread reading and study of the Bible, which is why I say that today on this day we talk about the affirmation of Scripture. Now, a commitment to the Bible wasn't new for these people, but a renewed, a recovery of the living nature of the Word of God, that it's alive, that it's active, that it has something to say for us today. For many in their day, the Bible, this book, had become like rules and regulation and law and just kind of wrote religion, and the pietists are like, oh, There's something here. We're finding life here. We're being changed because of our interaction with this book. So can we put this forward? Can we do this more when we gather instead of less? Can it be at the center of our gatherings instead of at the edge or or never mentioned at all? So I'm quoting now from some of our source documents as Covenanters. It says, The dynamic life-shaping power of the Word of God has been at the heart of the covenant since its founding. That life-changing word gave birth to conventicles, these small groups that met for Bible study, in confidence that the word would shape the life of the believer and the life of the community. It provided motive for practice of, or private devotional reading, which made us as covenanters known around, we had a nickname, we were called the readers. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this group of people, this story that we're a part of, was born out of dissent. Here's what I mean by that. Conventicles are these small groups of people that started gathering outside of the institution, right? So the institution's doing its thing, and no one's paying attention to it, and these people are finding that they're finding, they're finding life in Christ and in the Word and in worship together. So they, would just, they just took it upon themselves. They started gathering in homes together, and they're worshiping, and they're singing, and they wanted to, to do the Lord's table. They wanted to have the Eucharist. 
And the state institution is saying, you can't because there aren't ordained clergy to serve the elements. Just like the institution, right? You can't do that. That's against the rules. The covenant was born out of dissent from the state who said, you can't do that. And it's a group of people who are saying, you can't tell us that we can't have the Lord's table. We're a priesthood of believers. We can serve it to each other. And so they just kind of started doing this under the radar. Isn't that great? I just love that bit. You know, it's kind of like this covert op. They're like, no, this is a lie. We're finding life in this. We're going to do this. And, and so they just did it. The whole thing was born out of dissent. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that just fascinating how dissent birthed us? And yet, anyhow, that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> Here's the other thing. I'm telling you what, when I have gathered with like old-time covenanters, I get welcomed into these rooms with, you know, some of these people who have walked long, long ways further than I have. And these people love to sing. If you ever get the chance to go to like a covenant hymn sing, if any of you grew up in the covenant, I'm telling you what, it is something. I have recordings on my phone where I have been in rooms, somebody just starts playing a piano, and it's like a four-part harmony choir just erupts. And these people start singing. And I have found myself sitting in a chair weeping trying to add my voice to this story and like being overwhelmed with the faithfulness of men and women who have gone before me and who have said, it's this kind of story and who have tried to pass it on to me and here I am trying to like add my voice to it. And I just tell you, I like lose it every time. I can't even sing. This is the story we're a part of. These are the people. And they love, love, loved the scriptures. So I want to say a couple of things about Scripture this morning, the first of which is, Scripture is canon. What do I mean by that? In Greek, uh, the word canon means this. Uh, properly, it's a rod or a bar used as a measuring standard. So it's a, it's, a, it's a unit or an element, something that is used as the standard by which other things are measured, as valuable, right? Okay, think back to junior high or even elementary school, like when you were out on the playground, or in high school, do you remember that person that was the standard by which everyone else was measured? Do you, you know, remember that person? For me, in high school, it was Dylan. It was, it was happened to be when 90210 was going on, so it was like, this kid's destiny. He was written, you know, the stars were his... Dylan. <laughs> he was the standard by which everybody else was measured. He was the canon in that sense. Nowadays, I guess it's, uh, it's Athleta and Lululemon. Like, if you've got that, you're in, you know? I don't even know what that is. But my daughter, we were having a conversation about that. She's like, that's so dumb that, like, if you're cool, if you have, like, 30 pieces of Lululemon. And do you know how much that costs? Do you know how many people that can feed? And I'm like, you tell me. You go, girl. Come on now. <laughs> Finally, something that you're passionate about. You know, I'm like, fan the flame to that. It's, the, it's canon, right? That's the canon. That's the measurement. That's the standard by which other things are measured now. Scripture is canon. That's why it's called the canon of Scripture, 66 books. That it becomes the measurement or the way by which we determine where we are in the story. Insofar as it bears witness to the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus, it's the standard by which we measure and sort of ascribe to be like. It's canon in that sense. Here's why this matters. When all kinds of other people were arguing about like infallibility and inerrancy and all these things that really don't matter, covenanters, they're Scandinavians, they don't like to pick a fight, so they just said like, we're just going to say it real simply here, friends. Scripture's inspired, 
And it's the only, it's the perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So they affirm 2 Timothy 3, which says that all scripture is inspired. At, like the writers of scripture and the spirit at work in concert offering this thing that we now call scripture. So it's inspired in that sense. But it is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. By perfect, I want you to, to jettison like your Greek understanding of perfect. Like it's this perfection, you know, like you cannot improve on it. Take that, throw it away. Go with more like what's good and true and right. It's the only perfect, it's the only good and true rule canon standard for the life of faith, our understanding of doctrine, what we, what we know, what we understand, what we believe, and the life of the Christian, conduct. So this is how they thought about scripture, that it was this standard by which, insofar as it bears witness to Jesus and the life and teachings, death and resurrection, it becomes that which we aim for. This gives us the telos. It gives us the point at which we're aiming. And in that sense, it's canon. It's, this, it's the perfect rule. It's the good and true thing to help us understand our faith and our life and our doctrine, right? So, canon, number one. Number two, revelation. Now, this is where I tell you about dispensationalism and... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I've joked before. It's not a joke. I did this. I, did, I taught junior hires revelation once, and it was bad. It was very, very bad. If, I'm so glad we didn't have podcasts because I would not have a career. I'll tell you what. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something being revealed, something being offered. One of the most important claims the Bible is making is that this is a God, or it's painting the picture of a God who is interested in revealing God's self to us. Said differently, one of my favorite, favorite moments in Awakens history, a woman named Katie Sanders preached, and she gave this line. It is not a maze. It is not a trick. That's not what God's like. God is not like hiding. It's not hide and go seek. Over and over and over again, time and time again in scripture, we find God doing the opposite of that. Saying, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Hineni. 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 This is what God is doing all through the Bible. So we say, here I am to God, but I would argue that God is constantly saying, here I am trying to reveal God's self to us. And scripture is one of the primary ways that that happens. Uh, when I was in college, I met a woman whose name was Laura. Um, she was and is, remains stunning as a person. And when I first met her, I was just useless. You know what I'm saying? Like, she walks up, hey, I'm Laura, would you like to dance? Which says a lot about me and her. And I'm like, uh, uh, yes, right? But then began the pursuit, right? Then, then be, I'm like, what do I have to do to get this girl to, like, notice me? To, so what you do <laughs> is you do whatever you have to do to get the schedule of said person. Now, whether or not a guidance counselor at the university gave me that schedule remains to be unknown. I don't know. But I knew every move, like on a chessboard during a day that, that, that this young lady was going to make, and I knew what classes she's... And lo and behold, I would just randomly cross every path that she would cross in a day at school, right? Like, oh, fancy seeing you here again. Yeah, hi. Hey, hey, hey! It's like I wanted to be found, 
Right? It's like I was revealing myself to this person. Like, here I am! I want to suggest that this is the nature of the divine. That God is just saying, hey, I'm over here. I look like this. I sound like this. I love like this. And one of the ways in which that is happening is this book, which is why it has become the center and the, and the it has become like to the point of an idol in some religious settings, and we're going to try to get it off that pedestal to say it is one of the ways in which God is revealing God's self to us. One, one, one way to think about it is like a, a theology of revelation, uh, the, the word revealed in Christ, right? This is John chapter 1 and Colossians 1. The word revealed in Jesus, and then the word written, which is the scriptures, and then the word preached. And insofar as the spirit is at work in e- any of those things, that becomes a moment of revelation. So if my words and the spirit of God are at work, the church has understood this, this it's why it's so important in the Protestant tradition, this office, that something is happening when the word written and the word incarnate is preached and declared. Some would argue that the first word was creation and that it's always been speaking. So maybe there are four levels of revelation. But be that as it may, the point for this morning is this book is one of the ways in which God is revealing God's self over and over. So we have canon, we have revelation, and then lastly, this idea of it is alive and it is active. The writer of Hebrews says the word of God, which I think is talking about this, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. How many times have you read a passage of the Bible and it just jumped off the page at you? Or maybe you've read it a hundred times and then the hundred and first time it was just like, bing, like blinking lights, a word for you that met you right where you needed it to and it was like, ah, life. Like, it was as if you had a drink from a well. (laughs) I remember being, um, studying the ironic blessing, Numbers 6, where God says to Moses and Aaron, this is how you are to bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. I'm studying this passage with a rabbi and a group of people, and I'm really, really excited about it because I had never studied like, with, with Alan this passage, and so we start to go through it, and I'm like super excited. My excitement level is up here at the beginning, and as we go through it, it starts to wane, and I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, I already knew that. Not like I'm so smart, but I had studied, gotten a few of these things before, you know, like the Lord bless you and keep you. Keep is the word shamar. It's the same word given to Adam and Eve, guard, the, the garden. The Lord bless you and guard you. What does it mean that God is our guard, blah, blah, blah. What, excitement waning, 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 right? We get to the end of the ironic blessing and I'm just kind of like, huh. Well, I guess I'm just that good. <laughs> <laughs> and then it hit me like a lightning bolt. The last line is this, so they, Aaron and Moses, shall put my name on the people, and I will bless them. And I was like, oh my God. Every week, I get the chance to stand in this place and put the name of the divine on a community of people as they go back into the world. (laughs) I just... I don't know if you've ever thought, like, why does he stand up there and why does he do this thing? My pastor that I grew up with at Faith Covenant, he would always do it like this. 
And I was like, is that like Ross Foley? You remember, I, like he would do this. I'm like, is he Spock or what is happening up there? I don't even know. He'd do this thing, but why does he do that? Have you ever, like every week, most, most often when, we, when you get sent out of here, like I take great joy and honor and responsibility to stand in this place and extend my arms over you and put the name of the divine on you as you head back into the world. And it's one of my greatest honors. And it was, it was that moment where, like, Scripture became alive and it jumped off the page and it just slayed me. It's not two-dimensional. It's not flat. It's, like, four-dimensional. It's alive and it's active and it's, it's, it's as if it's breathing. And, friends, you don't put that in a laboratory and you don't poke at that and take tests and run diagnostics on it. You dance with that thing. You relate to it. You take it in. You wrestle with it. You make love to it in the most beautiful way. Like, I'm serious. Like, you gotta, it's a thing, it's a relationship. It's alive and it's doing something here and now. It did something then and it's still doing something now. It's so amazing. I'm sitting in Pachaman Terrace in a cabin all by myself. I need to hear from somebody, anybody, like Micah, I believe in you. I'm proud of you. You're, 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 you can do this, right? critical moment in my journey, existential questions. I'm in the, I would not recommend that, by the way, when you have those kinds of questions to go be by yourself for multiple days. Like something is bound to happen. So there I am, I'm sitting there and I'm reading the passage where Jesus comes up out of the water at his baptism. And lo and behold, what does God say? Which I'd read a million times. This is my son whom I am pleased with. And it just killed me. Waterworks, water, I like mark it in my journal, like God's telling me like, Micah, Micah, listen! If you will let me, I will be a father to you and I am so proud of you and you have it, you can do this, like I've given you what you need and you've, you've got it, so go. And if you knew like where that happened in my journey, you would know like when I came back from that and that's what happens, that's what happens. People will say this over and over and over and over again. You find people who have been followers of Jesus who, my roommate in college, an atheist, he just started reading the Gospels and he was met by the Christ. I don't know how to explain it. It, do, it sounds like I'm crazy right now. And to those of you skeptics in the room, you might think I am, but I'm telling you, I don't have words for it. I just know that it happens. Is that random or is that the nature of this book? Is it alive? Is it active? Which means we can't freeze the text, y'all. We cannot freeze the text. And by that, I mean it only means one thing. What does it say? What did it mean? Important, yes. But what is it saying? What does it say now for us today? Is as important as what did it say. So you can't freeze the text. You can't freeze your spouse. You can't freeze your friend when you like them and when you want them. Right? You know that person, and you know that part. You're like, oh, if I could just freeze you in that moment, you're so wonderful and beautiful and so lovable. Right? You can't do that to people. It's unfair. And I would suggest it's unfair to do that to this. Because that's not what it is. It's, it, it's, it's alive. God is revealing God's self to us and through it. So that's a disservice to the text. Here's my challenge. Here's my invitation to you. 
We are a part of a story and a tradition that has said scripture, the word of God written, is in the center. It is of great value. Why? Because it's a canon, because it helps us understand who we are and who we've been made to be. It is a means by which God is revealing God's self to us, and it is alive and active for you and for I today. So what would it look like for you and I? The old covenant, well, the old covenanters used to say, the scriptures, when read properly, are an altar where we meet the living God. What has the Bible been for you? Like if you just paused for a moment, like how has this book been used? What has it been for you in your life? Maybe a rule book or a guidebook or a recipe book, like just put in the right ingredients according to the book and you get the product, right? If you raise your children in the way of the Lord, they shall not depart. Why are my kids so crazy? I don't know. <laughs> That's the recipe book version, right? Maybe it's been an encouragement. Maybe it has been a, a light into your feet, a lamp into your path. Amy Grant, thank you. <laughs> maybe it's been less than that. Maybe it's, maybe it's been used as a weapon and maybe you feel like you've been harmed by it. I just want to pause for a moment, and I want to recognize all those things are true in this room. And I want to say, like, at Awaken, in terms of well and fences, we're saying it's a well. It's the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And part of that is this book. And so, an invitation to you, maybe for the first time, bring your questions, all of them, of the text. Don't, don't hide from them. Wrestle with it, dance with it, live with it, breathe it, push back against it. All fair in love and war. So an invitation to engage, for it to be alive among us and active in us. Amen? I'm going to ask my friend Emily. Um, we've asked, like, as we thought about the series, we're like, we should just have somebody share at the end of each of these, because like you talk all the time, Micah, but let's hear from somebody for whom it matters. Um, and so Emily is going to come and share uh, a little bit about this metaphor and why it matters. So would you welcome my friend Emily? Good morning, everybody. Um, so my name is Emily, and I'm pretty new here. I've only been going to Awaken for like two months. So when Micah reached out and asked me to speak, at first I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know any of these people. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this, um, this idea of wells and fences has been something transformational for me. Um, but I haven't had words to uh, kind of frame what I was thinking through until being here. Um, but my story kind of starts um, freshman year of college. I think like many people, I experienced a lot of my um, kind of major spiritual formation through those four years. Um, and it was in the context of a um, kind of fence-oriented community, um, which at the time like, really worked for me. Because you show up to like this big public research university and there's like a buffet of ideologies just kind of laid out in front of you. And all of them are offering you free food to come to their meeting. So it's like a buffet of buffets. Um, and so you're like walking on campus and you get a flyer from like, oh, university, like witches and sorcerers association. Not really, oh, but they have free bagels. 
maybe, okay. <laughs> so in the midst of all of these ideas kind of being offered up to you, there are churches that are kind of holding out these really like clear-cut boundaries, um, well-defined lines, and just some structure. Um, and it was pretty attractive. And so I jumped in head first. I was like reading all the theology books, getting super into it. I was in church like twice every Sunday. Um, and it was just so refreshing to feel like there was a hard line um, of in and out and that I was in. Um, and that, it did really work for me for a couple years. And it, it just feels so good. Um, it's kind of addicting to feel like you are in. Um, but after a while, there were a couple things that started to um, cause this to not work for me anymore. The first was that a couple people that I really trusted and kind of saw as um, friends and spiritual mentors from within my church community started questioning and kind of confronting me about um, someone that I was really close with and wondering if they were maybe out. Um, that their ideas were not only like unorthodox, but that they were like a danger to me. Because what if I got so close to this person that they pulled me from being in to being out? So the fence started to not look so attractive. Um, and then in addition to that, I was getting really involved in this organization um, as a part of the U of M. It's like an ecumenical Christian study center, which honestly just means like ridiculously smart people from every flavor of Christian tradition just sitting around and talking about theology. So like, that's what heaven looks like to me. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's really hard to feel certain about your fence that you've established when you're like really smart Catholic friends kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. And then you're like assemblies of God friend. It's like, yeah, but I, I don't know if I agree with that either. So Long story short, it just kind of started to break down. Um, and I just kind of started to realize that it is really hard to love people well when you are questioning whether or not they are in or out. And with that questioning whether or not you can trust them. And so I feel like over the last two years for me, there's just been this slow shift um, away from kind of like preserving and defending my orthodoxy um, and just like patrolling the fence. And it's been kind of a shift towards um, trying to orient myself towards the well, towards the person of Jesus. Um, and it, I'm finding that I am really bad at it. Like, it's really hard um, because when you're just patrolling the fence, it's all theoretical, it's all ideas. Um, there's no real risk in just kind of debating an idea with somebody, and it feels pretty safe. And you can hang out there for a long time, and I did for a long time. Um, and I mean, God forbid that I spend an entire lifetime just, like, I don't know, batting around with ideas. Um, but moving towards the well, I mean, it requires you to like actively engage your entire being. Um, and it's hard. Um, I have a, a big friend crush on Bob Goff, if any of you have read Love Does. If you haven't, you definitely should. Um, I think he sums it up really nicely when he says, I learned that faith isn't about knowing all the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. 
It's something more costly because it involves being present and making a sacrifice. Perhaps that's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and all of that to say in my extensive 20 years of, 20 some years of life, um, and all my experience, um, abandoning the fence and abandoning, abandoning the comfort there um, isn't necessarily easy. And to some extent, it feels like something is dying. But I have a sneaking suspicion that we're all in this room because we are wondering whether or not that well is offering us life and resurrection. So, thanks. Would you pray with me? God, this morning as we move to a time of silence and um, response, I pray that you would meet us, that you would say the things that you need to say and that you want to say, that we would have eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts that are soft to receive um, whatever it is that you have for us this morning. So speak, I pray. To the church gathered at Awaken, may it be true that as we read scripture, that we become people who are more generous, more life-giving, more full of love, more able to ascribe worth to others, people of peace. Amen? Um, I'm going to actually ask, before I give you a blessing, uh, I'd love to just fill this room up with your voices. If you know the doxology, we're just going to sing that. Um, as a nod to uh, the tradition that we stand in and come from. Um, As you leave, know that our prayer space is available to you and for you. If uh, you have any need for prayer, someone would love to pray with you. So would you sing the doxology with me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here be. bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter by Awakening Community. See you next time.